Miss the show, no problem on pointing on this podcast. The world responds to Vladimir Putin as he takes us into war. But a lot of people say our reaction here in the West doesn't go nearly far enough to send a message or stop him. And Putin's warning any country that gets involved that they'll face a retaliation the likes we've never seen. Is he bluffing? I don't think we want to find out. This is a guy, of course, who has nuclear weapons, so we'll talk about that. A lot of people wondering why we are getting involved. Well, not only do we have a moral obligation to defend a sovereign democracy, but we promised to protect Ukraine, which gave up the world's third largest nuclear arsenal to bring calm to the region back in 1994. So we have an obligation to stop this thug from taking this country. We'll talk to Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who weighs in on whether he thinks this is headed to a third world war. And we talked to a reporter who is on the ground in the second largest city in Ukraine, hiding in a hotel of what he is seeing and the threat that they face. And then we'll kind of turn away and we'll talk about the political fallout to the trucking convoy, which is now kind of a distant memory. But what was the fallout for the prime minister and all the rest of the politicians? Well, it's not too pretty for anybody. And there is a very clear message with what Ips's polling found when it asked Canadians for their thoughts. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. What Russia is doing is terrible and wrong and will be met firmly and forcefully uh, with a response uh, that will punish Russia and make sure they understand that this was a grave misunderstanding of the rules-based order and a grave miscalculation by Vladimir Putin. This is a dangerous moment for all of Europe, for the freedom around the world. Putin has committed an assault on the very principles that uphold the global peace. Now, the entire world sees clearly what Putin and his Kremlin, and, and his Kremlin allies are really all about. This was never about a genuine security concern on their part. It was always about naked aggression. We are at war with Russia, and thousands of Ukrainians will pay with their lives. Alex Pearson with you on what has been a very historic Thursday, February 24th. Lots to get through, lots of moving parts. You know, we knew this moment was coming. We just didn't actually know what it would look like. But it's now clear. Russia is all in. And I don't think we can underestimate, <clears throat> pardon me, that the costs to the Ukrainian people, not to mention the world, could be enormous. And I stayed up very late throughout the night watching the events unfold, and it was no creep. Not at all what, what I think a lot of people thought. Putin just went in, attacking Ukraine from every single angle. And already he's gotten to the capital of Kiev. That's been bombed for the last 24 hours and is currently surrounded by Russian ground forces. So Putin's moved a whole lot faster and much, much harder than most thought. And Ukrainians are literally trapped right now by the Russian military, which has now carried out hundreds of bombings, seizing airports, bombing military sites. They've taken control uh, of nuclear plants, including Chernobyl which uh, this hour, apparently there are reports that hostages are being held. That is not confirmed yet. But it does signal how close Russia is to the capital. There's a direct path from that um, nuclear site. And so the Ukrainian people are in chaos at this point. Absolute chaos. There's more than 100,000 
who are said to be displaced. Now, the pictures, if you haven't seen them, are absolutely heartbreaking, where you've got these families, these kids, their pets, uh, elderly people, all trying to hide underground uh, in subways, hallways, trying to get their money out of the country, or they're just trying to flee and they can't get out. Here is the voice of one reporter on the ground. Several dozens people were killed. Uh, Russian uh, forces bombed uh, hospital, at least one hospital in the Donetsk region, and four people were killed there. Uh, they bombed uh, cities in eastern Ukraine, uh, also killing civilians. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's uh, something really tragic and unbelievable what is happening now. There you go. And, and this is not going to be a military um, bloodbath. Um, it will also be igniting a massive humanitarian crisis, and so they're expected that thousands could die. And Putin sent out a pretty ominous warning to the world last night, stating that any country that interferes, quote, will face consequences the likes we've never seen. So, like, what does that mean? Well, it's obvious he's talking about nuclear weapons. And with this guy, who knows? He's got his back against the wall. It's not known how far he'll go. But Russia is also very sophisticated when it comes to cyber attacks, which could happen all over the world. Certainly it is part of the attack on Ukraine. So this could and likely will get much worse, with the real fear being that this will spread to Europe. And so that's why all day long you've had NATO and G7 leaders out uh, condemning this invasion. President Biden came out this afternoon announcing more sanctions against banks, uh, the freezing of every Russian asset in the United States. Justin Trudeau came out announcing more sanctions targeting members of Russia's elite, their families, Russian banks, uh, also cancelling um, export permits for Russia, as well as existing permits, which if you're in the mining business, which there is a lot of resources in that, uh, that can affect you. And um, as he signaled, but wasn't specific, uh, signaled more could come. Democracies and democratic leaders everywhere must come together to defend these principles and stand firmly against authoritarianism. Russia must immediately cease all hostile actions against Ukraine and withdraw all military and proxy forces from the country. So no leader um, has directly hit Putin directly with sanctions. And Russia has also not yet been kicked from the global financial system, which some thought would happen. The EU apparently voting on that anytime tonight. They have met uh, their meeting actually right now. But there is criticism that none of the actions taken so far go nearly enough, and it will not phase Mr. Putin. And so I think one of the things that Trudeau could and I think he should do is park his ideology and signal uh, right away, you know, that Canadian oil infrastructure will be exp expedited. Uh, we can be a resource for Europe give them stability with oil and natural gas, as well as uh, cut Russian oil off. That would hurt Putin. Make sure America knows, get your oil here. I mean, we just absolutely should not have waited for this. But Trudeau was asked about it, and he would not say anything. So I don't think that's in the plans, unfortunately. He also wouldn't say if Canada is going to have a military involvement, but we did learn today that 3,400 Canadian troops have been put on standby. And, you know, for anyone kind of shrugging their shoulders, because you'll hear people say, well, why are we getting involved? We don't want to get involved. Who cares? Well, you should care. I mean, we're very comfortable and we're very blessed to be living in the safest country in the world. It did not get lost on me last night as I lay in my bed watching what was going on, realizing how lucky we are. But this goes way, way beyond higher fuel prices or economic volatility. And those things will be a factor for years. So that's not going to be a blip. 
But where does this stop? Because if the sanctions don't work, what are we doing? You know, if Putin takes Ukraine, and that could happen by the weekend, why would he stop there? He wants to build his Soviet empire, so this could then easily move into the Baltic states. Uh, Putin may decide, hey, I'm on the move. I'll take action on our uh, Arctic territory. He's already amassed a huge cache of super weapons in the Arctic. We've done absolutely nothing to stop him, so he may say, those are mine. I'll take that. And, of course, China could see this as an opportunity to make a move on Taiwan, which it's been threatening to do for months. So it's a very volatile situation, and we simply cannot ignore it. But the other thing is we have an obligation to help Ukraine, not only because it is a sovereign uh, democracy, but we promised, we made a pledge to protect Ukraine, which gave up, in return, the world's third largest nuclear arsenal, which was done to bring calm to the region back in 1994. And I bet there is a lot of regret over that now. So we have an obligation to protect Ukraine and to stop this thug from turning the world on its head. And of course, we have 1.4 million Ukrainians living here. They all have family on the ground in Ukraine. So you can imagine the fear, the desperation, uh, trying to find information, trying to get family out, because no one, no one, I don't think, was expecting that this would get so dangerous so quickly. And here we are. These are among the darkest hour for Europe since the end of World War II. A major nuclear power has attacked a neighbor country and is threatening reprisals of any other states that may come to its rescue. This is not only the greatest violation of international law, it's a violation of the basic principles of human coexistence. That is EU's foreign policy chief responding to Russia's attack on Ukraine in what is nothing short of war. And I think a lot of people were caught off guard by just the sheer aggression that Putin used from the outset. Uh, because it's not just about clawing back a couple of the eastern states. This is full on, he's in, and he is planning to take the entirety of Ukraine. Which leaves a lot of questions. You know, how far is he going to go? Is this the start of World War III? And one of the things he said last night that struck me as rather ominous is that he said, you know, if any country interferes, they will face consequences of the likes we've never seen. So you got to wonder what that means. We're not talking about dealing with a country um, like Baghdad or Syria, whatever. We're talking about a country that is a military superpower that has nuclear weapons. And so... You know, that you wonder if, if this is the reason that NATO members didn't go further, like cutting Russia from the global banking system or maybe hitting Mr. Putin directly with sanctions. But it is a pretty ominous thing for him to say. I want to bring in someone who knows this world and probably knows a lot more than most about what might be going on. Retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman joining me. He is a, now a senior defense strategist with Samuel Associates. Good to have you. Well, good evening, Alex. I wish we were talking about something a little more pleasant. Um, I yeah. guess the person there would say is uh, my thoughts go out to uh, the people of Ukraine and uh, all the Ukrainian Canadians who are uh, obviously and understandably worried about uh, their homeland and their friends and family back home. This is terrible. 
It is really jarring. Um, you know, I've, we've been talking about this for, for a few months. Certainly Marcus Kolga has been warning this is coming and to see the buildup. So we all knew it was coming. But what struck me last night after the show as I watched Putin make his address and then you started to see the attack was how quickly it happened. I think the fact that he got to Kiev and started bombing Kiev so quickly in the biggest country, I mean, it was relentless on all sides. What, what, were, what were your thoughts about the aggression right out of the bat? Yeah, so I agree with what you said, and and you'll remember you and I spoke about this uh, a week or so ago, and and I at that time I I wasn't I wasn't convinced that he was going to cross uh, cross the line. Um, so you know it, it it was a shock in terms of the speed and the sheer um, volume of what's taking place, but from a military perspective, it's not actually a surprise in in the context of now uh, what is his clear objective which is to take and seize control of, uh, of the capital and of all the key uh, points of infrastructure in, in support of that. Yeah, I spoke with a reporter who is on the ground in the second largest city, and they are, you know, in the zone at a private at a hotel that's not being named. And and he was under the uh, impression that Kiev was going to be taken, you know, probably tonight, if not tomorrow, which is really stunning because uh, the idea, I guess, would be to topple the regime in Ukraine, get rid of them, and and put in some kind of uh, puppet regime for Mr. Putin. But you know, he said last night in a statement he's not going to occupy or milit. You know, he wanted to demilitarize and denazify um, Ukraine, which is a really striking thing for him to say. But I think what's obvious now is that Russia is in no way a small player. He has been working very hard uh, strategically and with his weapons. Um, You know, he's got a purpose here. He he knows what he wants to do. Yeah, and, you know, we have to obviously uh, listen to his words very carefully um, for two reasons. One, um, he, he often... Uh, does not mince his words so that there is some clarity in what he says. But equally, uh, there's a lot of rhetoric there that's designed mm-hmm. for uh, his domestic audience. So, I mean, in this case, um, it, it has been the, the goal. Um, well, you can go back since uh, the end of the Cold War and obviously 2014, um, more recently, uh, to, to bring Ukraine back under uh, direct uh, Russian control. So um, I, I think... You know, we're well on that path, and, and I, I fear, obviously, for the safety of the Ukrainian people, but also I fear that there isn't a lot they're going to be able to do. I, I have no doubt they'll make a valiant effort uh, to defend their homeland, um, but that there is a significant overmatch in terms of military capability. The, uh, the, the sheer uh, speed that you described earlier uh, is going to be hard to, to blunt, um, and uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic, unfortunately. Yeah, I, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, we waited too long and, and, and are very reactive uh, to everything that's been going on. And, and, and certainly the threat then would be toppling Ukraine and then the Baltic, he's not going to stop. I mean, where does this stop? I think that's a big question is people want to know how long is this going to last and when's it going to stop or will it? Well, yeah, I mean, it it is, it's entirely understandable that people would be um, looking at those considerations, and I have no doubt that uh, NATO planners, Pentagon planners, um, are, are looking at that. But equally, um, you know, there there are limits to what um, even uh, an incredibly capable force like the Russian military uh, can actually do, and what they can sustain um, if they're going to maintain and hold control 
of uh, Ukraine, and, and some of my uh, friends and colleagues have suggested who know these things better than I do, that they don't have sufficient strength on the ground to actually hold the country. So um, I, I think mm-hmm. it's unlikely that they could they could hold Ukraine and continue to press west. That doesn't mean, however, that NATO shouldn't be doing exactly what it is doing, which is taking uh, very prudent and appropriate um, preparations and bolstering uh, their eastern flank. And obviously, the, the Baltic uh, countries that you referred to, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, specifically, are going to be very, very concerned um, because they are former Soviet states. Um, they are now members of NATO. Um, and uh, th- this to them will, will be a far more um, uh, direct threat than uh, perhaps other members of NATO might, might imagine. Yeah, and, and to your point, I mean, it's one thing to take a country. It's another thing to then control the country. And so um, I think there's a concern then what happens. Uh, are we going to see a lot of street fighting, you know, where you've got these kind of crude fights between Ukrainians who have uh, picked up arms and, and, and going after Russian soldiers? Like, what does that look like if they don't actually take control of the country and keep control? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is... As you as you played the clip uh, at the opening here of our discussion, I mean, this is unprecedented historically, uh, certainly in our lifetimes. And, um, you know, occupying a country like that, a country of 44 million people that has um, around uh, 300,000 uniformed uh, people, uh, army, reserve, border guards, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that's no simple task. And, and uh, I think... Um, you know, they're going to be, the Russians are going to be bogged down in there for quite a while. And, and like I said earlier, I really fear for what could be a protracted and very bloody series of um, uh, almost um, uh, semi-guerrilla uh, uh, defensive attacks mm-hmm. um, by the Ukrainian forces. But but we don't know. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, you know, that's that, that's one of the big problems at the moment is, um, there's only one person who knows um, yeah. what his ultimate end game here is, and and uh, he he's not acting rationally, which is partly why I think a few of us got it wrong because we assumed that he would look at risks and consequences the way that most rational people would have, and and he clearly didn't. Uh, he has his own calculus. Yeah, and that's interesting. And, and at the same time, we would be seeing all these skirmishes and, and guerrilla kind of war t- tactics. There's a humanitarian crisis that needs to be uh, confronted, which will be just uh, devastating. But, you know, um, one of the things that you have talked about a lot and warned about is our complacency and our failure to take the seriously uh, the threat of Mr. Putin when it comes to our Arctic sovereignty. Um, you know, he has been working very hard, amassing huge caches of weapons. These are supersonic. I, I don't even know. I mean, these are massive weapons that he has bulked up in military presence. So, you know, he could be looking and saying, well, I'm not going to get much resistance on Ukraine. What's stopping him from, let's say, you know, moving in and claiming that territory? Yeah, and I guess I guess I'm trying not to go there. Um, and and I, I don't mean that that's not a legitimate uh, question you're asking, because it is. Um, I, I have to look at this from the perspective of um, you know, where, what are his longstanding um, objectives versus what he could do? And those are two different conversations. He right. doesn't, doesn't 
diminish at all your point, which is, um, I think, in fact, now we can we can point to uh, Russia under Putin and say this is a far more dangerous regime than even we thought it would be. And therefore, yeah. we need to take all of these uh, potential threats and scenarios um, all the more seriously because it's clear um, that he, he doesn't operate by the same rules of decency that the rest of us would would think would be reasonable. Yeah. And when uh, the Trudeau government says they're rethinking their Chinese strategy as well as their approach with the Arctic, hopefully that is they've gotten that wake up call. You know, when he says a comment like, uh, you know, the world will see consequences the likes we've never seen before. What do you take that as and, and how seriously do you take that? Well, I mean, it's it's hard not to think of, you know, the worst case scenario in that context. But I mean, you see, and this is the thing if from from Putin's perspective, U- Ukraine is is a, is a temporarily lost um, extension of Russian territory. So mm-hmm. you know he he sees this as a as a domestic issue. Um, obviously, the rest of the world doesn't, but that you know that doesn't matter because that's how he sees it, and and therefore you know he would he would he would look at this as an interference in internal Russian affairs. Now, the rest of us obviously don't agree with that. So, you know, I don't know um, what what it might be, but you used a couple of interesting examples where, you know, he could he could make life miserable in other parts of the world. Um, and um, I, I think some of that is blustered, um, but I don't think it can be discounted uh, completely. And, and the other thing I would add, uh, Alex, and, you know, you made a good point. You go back to China and and. <laughs> You know, you and I discussed this uh, before, the parallels between uh, Russia and Ukraine um, and mm-hmm. China and Taiwan um, are, yeah. are now, um, sadly, uh, only just starting to resonate um, here at home uh, when people realize that, you know, that this is real. China is going to be watching this very carefully. Uh, they're going to be taking notes and, uh, you know, basically from a Chinese military planning perspective, Russia is is basically running a running a uh, uh, a dry run, if you will, uh, of what China might want to do with Taiwan uh, at some point in the near future. Boy, oh boy, what a time. Uh, what a time indeed. Uh, very much appreciate your perspective. There are very few who have it. And so I, I uh, very much appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alex, and all the best. And as I said, I, I think uh, we should all take a moment and think of um, our uh, our friends in Ukraine and and uh, wish them all the best. It's a it's a terrible situation they're dealing with. Thanks. Indeed, yeah, it is for sure. It is. Thank you very much. That is a uh, retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, um, one of the finest men around in this country. And uh, on a side note, uh, how he was treated. Nonetheless, we're just glad to have him on our side. So. Several dozens of people were killed. Uh, Russian uh, forces bombed 
uh, hospital, at least one hospital in the Donetsk region, and four people were killed there. Uh, they bombed uh, cities in eastern Ukraine, uh, also killing civilians. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's uh, something really tragic and unbelievable what is happening now. Well, from the moment Vladimir Putin addressed his nation, Ukraine has faced a steady bombardment of shelling and bombing uh, troops are on the ground from almost every side. Russia is so prepared and very strong that it started to bomb the capital of Kyiv almost immediately. And now troops are said to be in and around the capital. I guess the threat is to topple power and take control. And they've already taken control of military sites, airports, uh, even the nuclear sites, including Chernobyl. And from certain reports we've heard, they're describing it as a, as a disaster. Let me bring in Finn Depensier. He's a freelance Canadian journalist. He is in the second largest city of Ukraine, a place called Kharkiv, where he is uh, doing some reporting for Ma- uh, Palladium magazine. And he is in an unidentified hotel. Good to have you. Thank you so much, Alex. All right. So it is a little bit later in the night for you. Take us through. I mean, we knew that this was going to happen. I think the assumption was that Putin would kind of creep in, take a couple of territories. I don't think anyone was prepared to see what we saw. Can you take us through what it's been like over the last 24 hours? Yeah, I think. I mean, that was my perception as well. Even though many of us have been reading the intelligence assessments, which have predicted a, you know, a full scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, it still seemed like, uh, you know, a full-blown war in Europe was something that just was in- inconceivable in our lifetimes. Um, and this war is now, I guess, it's like, you know, 16 or this, you know, the invasion, which is part of a war that's been going on for a decade, is uh, it's now 16 hours old. And Russia has been able to um, take over large swaths of the country. Um, they're on the outskirts of Kiev, like you mentioned. They took over Chernobyl, which is uh, one of the one of the most important avenues to drive into Kiev. Um, and yeah, I'm in the second largest city of Kharkiv, which is now surrounded, actually. So we're behind enemy lines right now, and I'm at a hotel with a bunch of journalists. Um, the, the the Ukrainians have held the city, <clears throat> but um, it's not clear how long. Um, how long they can withstand another onslaught, especially now that Russia has, um, uh, you know, waged cons- uh, other successful campaigns around the country. They can now devote uh, more reset re- resources to Kharkiv. So um, we're just waiting, I think, for for an imminent collapse of the city. And and there was intelligence before this started from America that, um, you know, if Putin was aggressive, he could take the capital in two days. Is that the feeling? I mean, I know that uh, the people of Ukraine are, are are defiant. They want to stand up. They want to protect their their country. But is this more than what people expected? Is there more of a sense of chaos and that this is going to end very badly? Yes. Well, I mean, it's going to end very badly and very quickly. Yeah. And, and, and even, you know, much shorter than 48 hours, people are talking about Kiev falling in, in in a matter of you know two hours tonight. So um, the thing is, uh, because they're attacking on all fronts, they're really spreading Ukrainian forces thin. And maybe it was very foolish for for us to assume that Putin would only try to uh, expand the rebel-held territories in the Donbass, because with a very concentrated invasion like that, uh, Ukrainian forces actually might have been able to withstand it, but because Russia is attacking on all fronts, they're just they're spread way too thin. They don't have the resources to take on an army that's just you know, so much larger and, and, and more powerful than Ukraine's. 
you know, the pictures are pretty heartbreaking when you see people and families hunkered down, they're hiding, the streets are, are basically empty. Uh, people trying to either get out or, or hunker down. Uh, in your situation, you're with a number of journalists trying to cover the story. It's very dangerous work for those uh, who live here and, and you know don't do this kind of work. It's a very dangerous line of work. What is the um, concern that you and your colleagues have as to what you could be facing over the next day or two? Well, actually, I think we're in the we're in probably the best situation of you know any other journalist in the country right now because Moscow has been made aware of. Uh, our location in this hotel, or at least that's what we've been told. And they're, they're, they're not likely to uh, shell a hotel with, you know, 40, 50 journalists. I mean, obviously, Russia is a very repressive regime, and they arrest journalists and, you know, kill journalists sometimes. But um, they're not going to, I mean, NBC is here, Rolling Stone mm -hmm. is here, Washington Post is here, like, we really do have strength in numbers. And I don't think they're gonna, you know, they're, they're certainly not going to harm us overtly. Now, it's there, there's two possibilities in Kharkiv, either Ukrainian forces stand down or Russia shoots their way into the city. But I, I really don't see a possibility where Ukraine can withstand the, the power of the Russian army when um, when, when they're going to have so much more forces concentrated on this front, having claimed victory and others. Um, so what will inevitably happen is, you know, as we've been predicting, is the Russian tanks will roll in. And we will be, you know, accosted or there'll be some there'll be some members of the Russian military that will come to the hotel. And I don't know, like we end up at a processing facility in Russia, like maybe Russia takes over the whole country and then they shuffle us like, you know, all the way west. And we and we get into Poland like it's it's it's, it's really unknown. I have no idea what's going to happen. I, think, I mean, it's going to be one of those one of those things. Um, I, I don't think they're going to kill us or you know, imprison us for a long period of time, but we could certainly be detained for several weeks. Yeah. Um, and and we're, we're behind enemy lines. Like there's, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, my colleague pushed further towards the front today. I, I, I stayed back, um, but he got closer to the shelling. His name's Colin Mayfield. He's a really great photojournalist from Alabama. And um, I mean, he reported seeing uh, Ukrainian soldiers that they looked underage, you know, and, mm. and this is something that, uh, desperate armies are known to do when they're, uh, you know, when when they're facing imminent defeat, they rely on you know people who, you know, really shouldn't be fighting wars. So it's a very desperate situation. Um, I, guess, I guess more so the point of that was like you can't get out of the city. It's just a, um, it's 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 either it's 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 either like Russian checkpoints where there's no front or it's an active or an active front, and so you, we're not getting out of here. Yeah, there are a lot of unknowns, uh, you know, and, and you sound pretty relaxed about it, but I'm sure underneath, uh, you know, there's always that adrenaline running because you just don't know what you don't know. And at the end of the day, um, you know, I think the, the question is, where is this going? I mean, as you know, the world leaders are announcing sanctions, financial sanctions. They didn't go as far as nailing uh, Putin himself. Um, but I don't get the sense that that's going to stop this. And I don't get the sense that Putin's going to stop for anything because he is in this. No, he's not. Absolutely not. I mean, he made the decision to invade the entire country. And I think that in the in the weeks leading up to this, um, there was an indication that um, there would be sanctions imposed on you know Russian banks and other entities and, and leaders, regardless of how far they pushed. Like the, um, the West took a very hard line position no matter what. And from Russia's perspective, that just meant, well, oh, if we're going to face the same consequences anyway, we might as well just take the whole place. Mm. Um, 
so no, I, I don't, I don't, ex, I don't expect, um, I don't expect sanctions to deter uh, th this invasion. I mean, they could, I mean, they're certainly going to weaken the Russian economy. I mean, Russian stonks are tanking mm -hmm. uh, the rubles at its, at, at its lowest point ever, I think. Um, so, yeah. Finn, what in, in your mind, from your vantage, uh, what is the most dangerous thing, uh, you know, in the, in the kind of imminent time frame? I mean, there's the most dangerous thing for us. And then there's, I mean, for their, for uh, me and my colleagues, it's uh, if, I mean, if there is some shelling uh, in the city, sorry, I, I'm just being ushered to see something here. Okay. Um, I think that, look, I, I think a nightmare scenario would be that if the Ukrainian militias and military decided to take up a, like a defensive posture in and around this hotel, I, I think that's very unlikely. Um, but for the rest of the country, I mean, we I, I haven't seen a good estimate of casualties yet, but it, it has to be in, you know, it has it has to be between like, you know, two and five thousand would be my guess. Wow. Um, I mean, like I, I we, we've seen dog fights between wow. Ukrainian and Russian jets, helicopters being shot down, uh, all, all the all the means of warfare are being deployed. These really are two 21st century armies uh, and, it, and it's, it's an unprecedented conflict in that respect, among others. So. Um, I mean, just just the sheer loss of life, and and you know, over the next you know few weeks and months and years, we'll 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 get a more accurate picture of that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, video, yeah, we just... we we hear the word uh, you know the term World War Three, um, and some kind of just look at it like as if that could happen. But when your vantage point is what you're seeing, is this going to be over, or could this, in your mind, lead to World War Three? There's always that possibility. I mean. I, I look, I don't think so, but the the most, um, most dangerous sign of such a conflict is that the United, uh, the United States uh, has indicated that uh, they could cut off Russia um, from, from the SWIFT banking system, which is like, you know, one of the most important pieces of financial infrastructure. Um, and uh, Russia said, if you do that, then that's, that's a declaration of war. And um, we didn't see Biden... Go, go so far as to do that in his speech tonight, uh, but it's it's on the table, um, and uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen though. I think, I mean, it's, but and it, but it's not going to end in Ukraine. I think uh, most immediately the country of Moldova is in serious trouble, which also has a, a Russian um, breakaway state called Transnistria that, that, that occupies a large part of the. The Ukrainian border. So I think the conflict is very likely to spread into Transnistria and Moldova, um, and then also uh, we have the, we we have a we have a you know a, an imminent refugee crisis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, uh, after Europe already got battered by the the Syrian civil war and and, and the Libyan civil war, and now uh, the, the the Ukrainian war is just uh, you know sending another massive wave of migrants into European countries that they're not prepared for. So it's, it's, it's a massive, massive disaster. I mean, yeah. God, what a day you yeah. in, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. If you told me I was going to go to bed with this and wake up with this, I, I knew it was coming, but just not like this, but I so, so appreciate your vantage point. It's so hard to get, you know, people on the ground doing your kind of work these days and uh, it's done it great. Um, you know, threat to your safety. So we'll wish you and your colleagues a safety and, and wellness. And certainly we appreciate you giving the um, vantage point to us. Yeah, no worries, Alex. I'd be happy to come on anytime. So talk to you soon, Hope.
for sure. That's uh, Finn Dupontier, who is writing for Palladium magazine. He is with a group of journalists on the ground in the second largest city of Ukraine. And so, yeah, it's an interesting vantage point, one you don't get often these days, but nonetheless, happy to have that viewpoint. All right, turning away uh, from kind of the world headlines, uh, you know, that Freedom Convoy, which now seems like a kind of distant memory right now, it's come to an end, but certainly the political fallout has been swirling around. And when you look outside the bubble, I thought there was some interesting uh, polling done on this, which kind of gives you a pulse of the country. And Ipsos did some polling for Global, and it finds, you know, this country is very divided on this issue. 52% of us blame the Prime Minister's divisive rhetoric and the way he approached the protests for what happened. But um, the Conservatives did not go unspared. 50% of Canadians blame them for backing it. Interestingly, 54% of Canadians asked whether they agree with this thing or not, believe the protests in Ottawa at least partially contributed to the loosening of COVID restrictions. And it shows that protesters have gained a kind of certain amount of sympathy along the Canadian uh, population. So they will take this as a win, um, no matter what. Let me bring in the guy who did all the digging, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He joins us now. Good to have you, Daryl. Thanks for having me on, Alex. The number one issue on people's minds on uh, on Wednesday was this. And of course, I bet you Mr. Trudeau is very happy to have a distraction like uh, Ukraine to take this off the, the pages for him. Well, I think maybe in terms of the you know day to day TikTok on you know what's leading the news, probably. But uh, just because they towed away the trucks didn't mean that they towed away the, the the sentiments. And I think more uncertainty when it comes to global politics further exacerbates the level of concern and frustration that led to what we saw in uh, saw in Ottawa. So uh, I don't know that it necessarily changing the channel on this one uh, is, is anything that's permanent for the Prime Minister. I think that all of those emotions and sentiments that we were seeing before remain in place, even with what's happened in, in, uh, in Ukraine uh, today. I think it speaks to the leadership issue, and I think certainly in times of crisis. I mean, it's one thing to deal with a bunch of truckers who are annoying you. Totally different when you're dealing with um, with a thug and autocrat and, and, and you know, a guy that's clearly ready to take the world into a third world war. Th- that requires real leadership, and so if you can't manage trucking, um, you know, the, the, and he's not up to this test. Canadians are watching. Well, yeah, but it's it's really that sentiment underneath. Uh, there's there's a, a a kind of a, a growing sense among a, about half of the Canadian population that whatever the issue, however things are going right now at the moment, it's not going the right way for them. And so, right. what we saw in the in the, in the trucker protest was almost half of Canadians saying, you know what, I don't necessarily agree with truck uh, parking trucks on. Uh, on the uh, on, on Wellington Street in Ottawa, but I certainly sympathize with the frustration that this is expressing, mm-hmm. and that's that's mm-hmm. really what we're seeing here. And it's not it's not really uh, looked at through a partisan lens. It's not specifically political, um, but it's about the institutions and their failure to deliver, and the person who's at the top of that, which is the prime minister. Some of your numbers, when you look at it, it's kind of split half and half. So these numbers can't be ignored. Um, it's that whether people agreed with these protesters or not, or demonstrators and how they did things, there is a, a sense of understanding and, and frustration uh, because people feel left out. They feel like they're falling behind. They feel like there's no one in Ottawa, you know, representing them or speaking for them. And and so they, they are getting sympathy from that. But that that's a huge number of people who feel like no one cares about them and that, um, you know, that they've been left behind. Especially younger people, which is the surprising yeah. thing here. So what, what's happening, at least what we're seeing in the numbers, Alex, is things that we usually rely on as very firm patterns in terms of public support and approval 
or, for example, for the Liberal Party when it's in government, doesn't seem to be happening right now. In fact, the people mm-hmm. who seem to be the most opposed to the uh, to the truckers are the people who are older, who see this as a public order issue, but also people mm-hmm. who are more comfortable, people who are more affluent. Um, so it's people who are less affluent, who are younger, um, and uh, seem to be not living the lives that they felt that they would be living that are the ones that, even if they don't necessarily agree with everything that the truckers are doing, say that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that frustration. And interestingly, it's the same group of the population, and this is going to be a surprise, that was also on side, for example, with Black Lives Matter. So it's yeah, not oh, necessarily oh, interesting. the substance okay. of the issue. It's just that expression of frustration. And not to mention, it's uh, it's as I had said to people, it's not political. Like it's not left or right. These are are people who are tapping into this anger and this frustration. They feel like they've got a voice who is speaking for them, and that's why they've joined this quote unquote fringe minority. But you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, and before you did this polling, looking into it, and you felt that, you know, and I we had been talking about the fact that this should not be ignored. You know, those those in the political world who ignore this are ignoring a huge amount of frustration in this country um, that could really further divide this country. And, and bringing us back to the situation in Ukraine, you know, we're going to see another surge in cost of living issues with oil going up, fuel going up, uh, inflation's going to go up, everything's going to get more expensive, which just then feeds into this frustration about falling behind, you know, economic, um, you know, frustration. Yeah, and in in terms of, uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, what we saw as we were coming out of the pandemic last time so if we go back to uh you know earlier in the fall uh before christmas uh when people started coming out of this you know the urgent issue of the pandemic we saw those issues already starting to come back up in fact for at least one month housing became the most important issue in the province of ontario Um, so those are the kinds of things that are going to start emerging now and if we see energy costs moving up and the cost of living going up and uncertainty which is the other part of this starting to prevail as the public mood it's not seen necessarily through partisan lenses but what it it does do is it reflects it it does not reflect well on the institutions that are supposed to be making these things understandable manageable and livable yeah people need stability and you know we've now gone from a pandemic um, you know, into all these different crises now tapped off by a possible threat of a, of a war in, in Europe or, or even bigger, if God help us, if it turns wrong. And so people haven't had stability now for three years, and it doesn't look like that's coming back anytime soon. Yeah, these are the most uh, divided numbers I've seen in any time in, uh, you know, wow. I've been doing this for over 30 years. Wow. And normally you could, you could see it in regional terms, like, you know, maybe Quebec's feeling one way and Alberta's feeling another way, or, or uh, you know, in partisan terms, you know, liberals are happy and conservatives are unhappy. This time around, we're seeing it's almost like a, a class of people who are saying, you yeah. know, I don't, this isn't working for me. And you've got another class of people who are basically saying, your disorder and upsetness is not working for me. And we're divided on that. You wrote the book next, of course, looking at future voting patterns and where shifts are coming. And you've looked at all of this. And so how then does this all kind of roll out for you in what you're seeing in the next couple of years or certainly as we, you know, head into a leadership battle with the conservatives and certainly someone who's going to want to tap into this? I think you're going to see a few things. One of them is that uh, incumbents beware. This is a very combustible, volatile political environment. So if you're mm-hmm. going to be running for election, um, you know, all bets are off. I think, I think that's wow. the first thing. The second thing is uh, moods like this create a desire for change. So I think anything that's going to be different from what was offered before, 
are going to be things that are going to get uh, more uh, more of a look, and particularly those things that are more emphatic, that seem to have a clearer type of answer to whatever the problems are that uh, that people are are experiencing. Those things are going to get more of a look. So there's potential that we could see more division in this country, and it's not just organized on the right. Although a lot of people pay a lot of attention to what's happening on the right, it's also organizing itself on the left. Where yeah. we're seeing those uh, that that group of the population saying more emphatically about what they think about what the country's future is going to be. So that you know, kind of easy Laurentian elite, we're going to manage this as though national unity in Quebec is the biggest issue facing the country. Thing that has defined our politics for almost 200 years has really dropped off, and we're getting into things that look more like politics in other places. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not sure it's a good thing, but nonetheless, it is interesting and it's volatile. So interesting numbers. Appreciate you joining us, Daryl. I know it's a very been, uh, been a really busy time, so I appreciate you jumping on. Thanks for having me on, Alex. That is Daryl Bricker with Ipsos Polling and, of course, author of Next, which if you haven't read it, you should, because it's one of those books that uh, if you really want to kind of capture trends and future glances of this country, it is a, a good way to find that. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.